Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look today at the Philadelphia Church, the faithful church. And I'm going to do two parts. We're going to get through half of this, and we're going to stop in point number three about halfway because the faithful church has a lot to be said about it, and we have to unpack quite a bit. So as you're turning there, Revelation 3, the Philadelphia church, let me just put this out there. I know this sounds crazy, but this is not in Pennsylvania, okay? The Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, the birthplace of Rocky Balboa, and the birthplace of the Philly cheesesteak. This is not the place that William Penn founded. Interesting enough, William Penn, who founded Philadelphia, took the name from this passage from the Church of Revelation. Remember, just some American history, William Penn founded Philadelphia as a sanctuary city for the Quakers. If you're eating Quaker oats and you see the guy on the the front, well, they took the name from the Quakers. They were the Quakers, a Christian group. I don't agree with all of their theology. They had some messed up theology, but... Do you know that it was the Quakers who contributed a lot to the Bill of Rights? And it was the Quakers who, if you go to Philadelphia, were the ones who created the Liberty Bell. So William Penn took his people. This is the 1600s, 1700s, and the Quakers were there. Now, why did they get to name the Quakers? Well, George Fox appeared before the king of England one time, and he basically, I'm trying to paraphrase, he basically told the king, you ought to be quaking before God. And then king, the king responded. He goes, what are you, some Quaker? And so the name stuck. It was a derogatory term because he was saying you should be trembling basically before God. He's telling the king this. And it became a pejorative term that they actually adopted. Yeah, we'll, we'll take that on. We are the Quakers. We quake before God. They had some weird ideas. But anyway, that's where William Penn settled the city of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia we're talking about and the passage is talking about is in Turkey or Asia Minor at that point in time. Let me show you a picture on the screen. Philadelphia is down here. This is a picture of Turkey. You had Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, or Thyatira, Sardis, and then you had Philadelphia. And then Laodicea we'll deal with next time. But Philadelphia sat at the crossroads or the gateway basically between the east and the west. And it's a strategic city. A little bit of background on Philadelphia in Asia Minor. The reason it's got its name Philadelphia is because of King Attalus. Uh, 150 BC became the king in that area, and he founded this city. And he loved his brother Eumenes so much, it became a nickname of him of Philadelphia, brotherly love. And so the city was named in honor of him, and that's where the name stuck there. Couple things about it. You can see there's another picture I think I have. There's not a lot of pictures of it. This is an old church in Philadelphia. As you can see, there's a mosque in the background. And I wanted you to see this because Philadelphia was eventually the Church of Philadelphia. And that brown stone right there, that was the Byzantine church that was there for centuries. And it was the Muslims who came through and destroyed Philadelphia and took over this area. And you can see the mosque in the background which happened to a lot of the churches in Turkey. They were taken over by Muslims. A lot of times you're going to get things saying, well, the Crusades were really bad. And yeah, I understand the Catholic Church was doing crazy things, promising forgiveness to people who went on these Crusades, but 
the intent of the Crusades was to push the Muslims back. The Muslims were getting ready to take over all of Europe, and they would have had not the Crusades happened. So, yeah, we don't agree theologically with the Crusades, but it was the Crusades that prevented them from taking all over Europe. If the Crusades didn't happen, Europe would be Muslim. They had pushed all the way to Cordoba, Spain. They had actually taken all of Asia Minor and Turkey. They had taken Constantinople, and so it was a bad deal. But nonetheless, Christianity so, so much under the Catholic Church pushed them back a little bit and prevented them. Unfortunately, it's happening today, though. Anywho, let's go to the first point and, and understand as we unpack the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, what it means. Philadelphia, in point number one, means brotherly love. And this church had the condition of the great missionary movement dominated the area of A.D. 1648 to about 1900. So give or take a couple years. So about 200 years from 1700 maybe to 1900. This was the great missionary movement epoch of church history. I'll unpack that just a little bit. So let's look at the text and kind of unpack it. And we're going to take our time in there because it's extremely important. I know it's a brief text, but there's a lot behind this. In verse 7, it starts, and this is 7a, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now, the church of Philadelphia is under the watch care of a particular angel. This angel is to execute any judgment or protection this church needs. Not only historically, but the kind of church that is a Philadelphia church even in our modern day era. Okay, so angels are assigned to each church, and I have told you this before. They either execute judgment on that kind of church, or they protect that kind of church. In this regard, in the Philadelphia church, you will see no condemnation from Messiah to this church. This church and the church of Smyrna, which is the persecution church, receives no condemnation. Now, it's not a perfect church, the Philadelphia church, but it's a faithful church, and because it's faithful, receives no condemnation. I would like to think Rock Harbor is in this venue of a Philadelphia type of church, that we're doing what we can faithfully, and you'll see the other qualifications of Philadelphia, but I hope that we're in this category. I think we are. We're not perfect, but we're least faithful to His Word and his, our loyalties to the Messiah. Now, a little bit about this Philadelphia church. Very small very few resources, but extremely faithful to Messiah. They were suffering persecution. We'll get into that persecution in just a bit. They were suffering persecution, but they still remained faithful. They would not leave their post. They would not depart from Christ. They would not depart from his word. They stayed, it, stayed there, and they took whatever heat came upon them. Now, the question then becomes, how did they become so faithful? What made them so faithful? What made him a faithful remnant church? Because if you go, you take this church out into our era, this is the church that's going to be raptured and removed. And you'll see this in the text. They're going to be removed before the great tribulation and what we know is the rapture. Now, what makes them so faithful that they're going to be removed? Well, number one, they're believers. But faithfulness is what you see on the outside, Okay. Faithfulness means that they stick to it. You're going to see them serving. You're going to see them evangelizing. They're going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing day in, day out, every Sunday, whatever you want to say. They're always there. Just like our people who 
pack up and set up. They're always there. They're doing that. Our teachers are always teaching day in, day out, doing the same thing. How do you become faithful? Because so many Christians are flaky. They're just flaky. They start things, but they don't finish them. They have good intentions, but then they stop. How do you continue to stay in the game? How do you continue to stay faithful? Well, the hallmark you have to understand is that the inner life determines your outer success in Christianity. Your inner life determines your outer success in your walk with the Lord. So in in essence, what I'm saying is life, Christian life, works from the inside out. Explain this. Let me give you an illustration. Emmett Smith. Everybody knows Emmett Smith. Dallas Cowboy running back. I think he uh, ran for 15 years, right? Anyway, 15-year career, 18,355 yards. He broke Walter Payton's record. And they estimate that he pushed and shoved over 14 miles in all of that and picked himself up from the turf 4,400 times. How did he keep picking himself up after 15 years, 4,400 times? I know I'm using an athletic description, but how did he do it? Well, when they interview him, obviously he had something inside him that made him get up and keep doing it for 15 years. It wasn't the press. It wasn't any of that. It was his internal motivation. It wasn't outside cheerleading or someone telling him he's such a great runner. It was internal that made him continue to pick himself up after being tackled so many times. The point I'm saying is what drove Emmett Smith internally himself, internal motivation, is the same thing that really drives us. It's an internal motivation because of Christ. And the only way you get this internal motivation of faithfulness is that you have to develop it. The Philadelphia church knew how to develop their Christian character, their Christian walk, because they focused on the inside, not the outside. We'll explain this a little bit. Here's what happens. Your behavior, my behavior, speaks to us. It talks to us. If I'm a flake, and there's a lot of Christian flakes, if I'm a flake, it speaks to my internal character, that I have not developed my character. I have no staying power. I can't stay at it. It tells me that I have a character development issue. God has given us talents. God has given us a brain. God has given us time. God has given us his word, and he expects us to use that to develop the internal so that our external can manufacture that stuff that he desires, like faithfulness. So many people, though, so many Christians, are driven by outside circumstances. And Philadelphia had nothing to do with the outside because they were being persecuted. So what was driving them was an internal motivation. And so what do I mean by this? Well, a lot of Christians are driven by the external. Well, they'll say things like this. Well, if I could find a good mate, I'd be happy. Or, you know, if I could just live the kind of life I want to live, I would be happy. If I can find a better job, if I could find a better spouse, trade my, the spouse I have in and get a new one, then I'd be happy. Or if I could make more money, Brandon, all I need is just a little bit more money, and then I would be happy. 
That is a Christian telling you that they are driven by outside sources. You know, they've done studies on this, guys. Even in the secular world. And this is what they find. It's very interesting. That only about 10% of the outside actually influences you in any possible way. So yeah, if you do win the Powerball lottery, so to speak, you're going to change for a little bit. But really, those Powerball winners, those lottery winners, don't ever change on the inside. Their outside circumstances change, but they're still the same person. So if they were a jerk before they won the lottery, and now they win the lottery, they're a, a jerk with money. That's all they are. Nothing's changed. Because internally, nothing's changed, right? And that's how we have to understand how do we get faithful like the Philadelphia church? Because I think we're part of this, this venue, this characterization. You have to focus in on the internal and use everything God has given us because 90% of the way you deal with life comes from inside of you. I want you to think that. That's how they were able to deal with everything. Let's move on. Point number two then. That's why they were faithful. But number two is this. Jesus is described as our vindicator and the one who possesses the authority over our ministry opportunities. Now, let's explore this a little bit. and we'll Go back to verse 7. And this is a description of Messiah, but it's a description not found in Revelation 1. Now, let me make this point before we go on. In the churches he's going to condemn... He will refer back to his image and the vision in, that John saw in, in Revelation 1. The reason for it is the vision in chapter 1 of Revelation is a vision of judgment coming from Messiah. Messiah is coming in judgment. And he's coming in judgment to the church is not behaving correctly. But the Philadelphia, like I told you, has no condemnation. There is no judgment coming to her. Hence, Jesus takes images from other parts of Scripture to convey stuff to them, things that they need, which is not a condemnation, but a picture of hope. He says this, write, These things say he who is holy, he who is true. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this is a common Jewish way of referring to Yahweh, that he is holy and true, right? Holy and true. Those two will always go together. Let me tell you why he's saying this, and you'll understand it when I give you the context. Historically, Philadelphia was a temple warden. What do I mean by that? They guarded the emperor worship in that city, and they called the emperor the son of the Holy One, the Caesar. They were calling him that. So undoubtedly, Jesus is contrasting that with himself and telling them, there is no holy one over there in that temple of Caesar. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. I'm the true reality. The idea of holiness is separateness, but it's Jesus declaring himself to be God, that I am the only one true God. And who is true means that as opposed to any false teachings about God and any error about Jesus. So he says, I'm the one true God connotates a theological position of the Messiah. I'm the one true God, and what I say is true, as opposed to what you're hearing from the outside world. That's going to make sense 
when you understand what Philadelphia is having to undergo, okay? We'll come back to that. So Jesus basically is saying, I'm the only one true God, basically. And there's a reason for that. We'll come back. He says, he who has the key of David. This key of David has to do with authority. Anytime you see a key in the scriptures, it has to do with authority. Now, Messiah had given the keys of the kingdom to the apostles to open up evangelism, and they did that. You can see that in the book of Acts. That was an authority to open those, those gates, so to speak. And then in Revelation 1, Jesus is said to have the keys of death and Hades. He has authority over physical death and spiritual death. And it's only through Messiah that you can attain resurrection and spiritual life. So he has that authority to give life to those who want it. Okay, but in here, he says, I have the key of David. Well, this is a messianic claim. The key of David has to harken back to the household of David or the dynasty of David. It's a very Jewish understanding. Because what God did is he made what's called the Davidic covenant with Israel, that I'm going to give you an ancestor from David's line who will sit on David's political throne forever. Well, the only way that can be satisfied is he has to be human, but he also has to be God because he has to be able to sit on the throne forever. So it's satisfied in the God-man Messiah. Hence, Jesus has that authority that has been given to him from the Father in order to sit on David's throne. The throne of David is unoccupied, and it sits in Jerusalem. There's no literal throne there, but when Jesus comes back, he will sit on David's throne in the temple and exercise that authority over the dynasty and over the entire world. So it's a reference to Jesus coming as king and ruling in the Messianic age. It's a reference to that authority that he has. He's the only one that has that. Now, he says something very interesting He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 22. This was in the days of Hezekiah when they were being attacked by the Assyrians. There was this old boy named Shebna who was playing political games at the time. He was actually the treasurer of David's storehouse of treasures. Hezekiah was the king. This guy did some political jockeying to position himself, to do some self-aggrandizement, to pay himself off, to get himself a position. And basically then he manipulated politically to get in a very wealthy position to have the key to open the storehouses of David. Okay. What ended up happening is God took him and he said, literally, I'm going to whirl you around and cast you away. And he sent him off into Babylon for doing what he did. And then what God did is he put another guy in charge named Eliakim. And he became the steward of David's house and the treasure room. And basically, Eliakim is a prefigure of Messiah being over God's house and God's people and having access, the only one to have access, to open the treasury of David. Okay. To put this into terms we understand how Jesus fulfilled this, he says, all authority has been given unto me. Jesus controls who comes in and who comes out. People who want salvation, he opens a door for them. People who don't, he closes the door. He also has access to the treasury that God has, the the, the true spiritual treasures. 
He is the key, so to speak, opening that treasure to anybody who desires it. So hence, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that controls the door. He did say he was the door, did he not? He was the one who opens and closes it. And he has the access to God the Father's treasure. He is the steward of it as God the Son. That picture then is a picture that is apropos for the Church of Philadelphia because the key to open doors and close doors is a reference to ministry opportunities, ministry opportunities. Follow with me in verse 8, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. He goes, I know your works. So he has no complaints. He knows what the Philadelphia church has been doing. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. This open door that Messiah has access to, that he can do, is in the context of the ministry of the Philadelphian church. So with the context, we're saying that it's basically ministry opportunity that he has given the Philadelphia church. The ability to evangelize, the ability to disciple, that's what he's saying. I control that, and I'm situating Philadelphia in that situation to do this. Now, let me give you the historical situation so you can understand more in-depth of what Jesus is talking about. Philadelphia is situated on a border town. It is the gateway that it sits on between the east and the west in Asia Minor. Now, what Philadelphia was used by the original kings of Philadelphia was they were trying to usher in Greek influence into the east. And it was through Philadelphia that you did it through. In fact, they did it so well that the Greek language permeated all of the Middle East and became Koine Greek by the time of Jesus' day. And that was the lingua franca, uh, was Koine Greek. And it, it worked very well because of Philadelphia. It was a major trade route. Everyone went through Philadelphia. So then what ends up happening is Jesus is giving a message to the Philadelphia church and saying, I planted you here for a ministry opportunity. You're sitting on the gateway between the east and the west. And I'm going to use you to spread Christianity, not only eastward, but westward. Because as you know, in in history, you look back at 2,000 years of church history, where did the cradle of Christianity become? It went west from Israel. It went into not only Greece, but took over all of Europe. That would be the cradle of Christianity. And so he positioned this little church on that trade route so they could spread the word. And they did a very good job of doing it, by the way. They founded so many things and spread the gospel like wildfire. Now, let's get to the point of some application about this to understand it. What does this mean for you and I? It's the same concept, same principle. Jesus controls the ministry opportunities that come into your life. He either opens doors or he shuts them. Now, here's what happened. The apostle Paul had doors shut on him. He had doors open to him, and he'll recount this to the Corinth church many, many times. He even said, if you remember in Acts, that he had the Macedonian dream. He was prevented from going to the east. That door closed, and then he was told to go into Macedonia, or which is Greece. He was redirected by God to go westward. So Paul will make those statements, and he'll say a door of opportunity, right? A door of opportunity came to my way or something like that. Okay. It is at this time... In, in church history, between 
1700 and 1900, about 200 years, that the missionary movement exploded all over the world. Researchers look at this, and this has never happened in church history. There was no place on this planet that the gospel didn't go to. Nothing was barred. Nothing was, was prevented. They just went everywhere, and the floodgates were open. And many, many thousands of people, millions of people, got saved through this epoch of time. Now, I'm, I've jumped from the historical situation now to the era. I hope you're following me with, with me on that. So things happened. The uh, Moravian brethren in Germany started. They got an inkling from God that God wants missions to go out, and it started. And the Great Awakening started happening. This is the early 1700s, 1740s. Bear with me on some history, but I think it's important for you to understand. The impact of this missionary movement is still with us today. The Philadelphia Church and its impact is still with us today. It began in England, and if you recall... The sun never set on England. They had colonies all over the planet. Well, guess who accompanied the colonialization of what England was doing? Missionaries accompanied them. And they went into all these places. They went into the Polynesians and evangelized them. They evangelized all these places like Australia and different places all over the planet, Africa, different places. Some of these Puritans, as they were called, you might know them, like John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He's part of this missionary movement. John Newton, part of it, wrote the great hymns that you hear. You had the great Wesleyan revivals. You had George Whitfield's preaching, not only in England, but he came to America. The Great Awakening hit America and hit England, and people were getting saved by thousands, guys. It's amazing... To watch, you get onesies and twosies here in America, you get saved. Back then, it was by the hundreds and thousands in America were getting saved. It was an amazing revival time. And there were, you had the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. The, the Baptists and the Methodists were behind this. And if you remember, the Methodists had circuit riders. And they would go all through horseback on the eastern seaboard getting people saved. And then you had what's known as the camp revivals. The Baptists were a, had a lot to do with that, and so did the Methodists. But the camp revivals in America were unprecedented. Never seen people get saved like that. Thousands upon thousands of people in the pioneer days getting saved in America. Then there was a time of revival all over the world. William Carey went out into India to witness to them. Robert Moffat, the son of the famous David Livingston, went to Africa. A lot of work there was done. Adoniram Judson went to Burma, Hudson Taylor, China, and then you had all the preachings of uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody. I don't agree with all their theology, but what was happening is they were getting people saved left and right, like we'd never seen in church history before. But here's the deal. That era doesn't exist anymore in America or England. We don't see it like it is today. In fact, a lot of what happened, Britain was ahead of this, and then it transferred kind of to the United States. We still are the number one sending missionary country on, on the entire planet and who is funding a lot of the missions. So a lot of what Philadelphia was doing in England came and settled right here in America. But unfortunately, things are changing. Evangelism is dying in America and evangelism is dying around the world because America is not sending any more money to them. 
And I've told you this before about Steve Kern down in Central America. He told me, he goes, Brandon, 80% of the people who come down here on missions are doing social gospel stuff. They're not even given the gospel. A lot of those days are gone by. What they call them in missiology is called a burnt-out district. Think about this. A burnt-out district. How does that codify with England and France? And You would say, yeah, that's a burnt-out district. No one's responding to the gospel. You're right. And think about what's happening in America. Very few people, especially the youngers, are not responding to the gospel anymore. In missiology terms, that's called a burnt-out district. It's like a wave has come through. It came through in American history, came through England, and, and moved through the world. And then once the wave and the fire goes and it's gone, it might go to some other part of the world. Right now it's in China, it's in Africa, and it's in Central America. But that kind of revival stuff is not here. Now, this is an application for all of us, and I think this is important to understand. There's a lot of post-millennial Christians, which means that they believe they're going to usher in the kingdom without Christ, that believe, they keep saying, we just need to pray for revival. We need to pray for revival. I think God's going to do amazing things, and he's going to have a revival. Really? Because if you study history, the conditions for revival are no longer here in America. The conditions for revival in England are no longer here. What do you mean? What are the conditions if you study revivals? The, study, the, the conditions are, I'm extremely poor. I could die this winter if I don't have enough logs stored up to burn my fire. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the winter. Extreme poverty, extreme survival, and you put those conditions, which was happening on our prairies, and people moved out west. They were trying to survive. So these camp preachers were coming on saying, hey, you may not live for tomorrow. You better get right with God. And that message resonated with them. But if you get in a society that's affluent, industrialized, fairly wealthy, they will see no need for Christ because they don't think they're going to die. They don't see their need spiritually. So when people say, well, you need to pray for a revival, well, then really what your prayer would be, turn America into a poverty-stricken nation where they're barely surviving. That's what you really would be praying for. That's the conditions that were set. So why is Steve Kern so successful in El Salvador versus here in America? Because they're dead poor. Twelve people live in a home. And they sleep on the floor. And they get by on $400 a month. And they, if they get a disease, there's no going to the doctor. They just die. That's why it's lighting on fire down there. That's why hundreds of people are getting saved. You go to America, they're relying on doctors, relying on their bank account, they're relying on this. They don't need Jesus. So if you hear people say, we need, we need to have a revival, then really what you're hearing is, we need to pray for 1700s and 1800s conditions in America. And who would want that? It's not happening. So the, the, what you see is in the Philadelphia church, they were poor. They didn't have anything. And that's why the gospel resonated with them. It makes perfect sense. Jesus said it himself. He said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Why did he say that? Because the rich person relies on other things. They rely on their money to get them through life. And so it clouds their vision. That's what's happening in America. Let's go back to the text. Some very curious things he says. He says, 
for you have little strength. Now, here's the deal. The reason he has laid down an opportunity before the Philadelphia church is based on three criteria, and I want you to notice them. It's going to be applicable to your life. The first thing is for, it should be because in the Greek. You have little strength. Why would that be one of the reasons Jesus gives this church a ministry opportunity? Because you have little strength. I'm going to give you this opportunity. That seems counterintuitive, right? It should say because you're strong and healthy and this and that, then I'm going to give you this opportunity. You have a lot of money and you have a lot of personnel, and that's why I'm going to give you the opportunity. No, no, no. It's because you're small that I'm going to give you the opportunity. Do you know what happens in a situation like Philadelphia that's small? When it means that you're small, it means that you don't have any money and that you don't have a lot of people helping you and your congregation is small. That's what it means. Little personnel, little money, little finances, all that stuff. He goes, but I'm going to give it to you. Because you know what happens at a small church? You have to continue to rely on God day after day after day after day. At a big church that you have a $150 million bank account, you're not relying on God at that point in time. You're relying on your bank account. When you have 30 staff members, you're relying on your staff. You're not relying on God working through people. It's just you tell the staff person to do it, they do it. There's no, it's all flesh. It's all of the flesh. It looks good, but it's all flesh. When you're in a small situation like Philadelphia, you completely have to rely on his resources. He's got to do it. If something's going to happen, he's going to have to do it. That is a position of faith that you come to the end of yourself. That's why he says, I'm going to help you and give you the opportunity because you rely on me. And I will be the power and the strength and the provision that you do need to accomplish this. That's the first condition. Look at the second condition. He goes, you have kept my word. You have kept my word. Now, what does this mean? In the Greek, it means to watch over, to guard, to preserve, to give heed to, to pay attention, to observe, to apply. It's not only that they have their theological issues correct, They actually do it. It's one thing to be all theologically correct, but it's another thing to actually obey it. That's Sardis. The church of Sardis had their theology correct somewhat, but they wouldn't obey it. They were still dead. So the Philadelphia church actually does what it says. And so they protect the theological errors from, and they actually do it. Now, one more note on this. In order to be theologically correct, the Philadelphia church has a proper hermeneutic. What do I mean by that? Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. The great thing about the Philadelphia church was because they're guarding the truth, the reason they can guard the truth is because they are, their biblical interpretation is sound. They make good interpretations from the text. What's happening to the churches today is you have anything that goes, any willy-nilly thing and doesn't even apply to the text. You're like, what in the world? They're just making stuff up. They read into the text presuppositions of their theology. They take things out of context, and it messes up these churches. Philadelphia did not do that. They were sound hermeneutically. And because of that, it protected them. That's what he says, you've kept my word. And the third one is, you have not denied my name. 
That's the third qualification, the third condition. You've not denied my name. What is he referring to? Jesus is saying, this church is spirit, has spiritual fidelity to me. They're loyal to me. In what way? Well, it's easy. You go to James. James talks about spiritual adultery of believers. How does a believer commit spiritual adultery against Jesus? They become worldly. That's James's point. So Jesus is saying, this church is loyal to me because they're not worldly. There's a lot of churches that might have their theology straight, but they're worldly. They use worldly gimmicks to get people's attention and different things like that. He says, no, no, this church is loyal to me. They're not worldly. So notice the three conditions. The three conditions of why he gives them an opportunity to serve him in this capacity. But let me make one more thing happen in our minds. There is another condition on the other side of this equation. Those are the conditions for us and given ministry opportunities. But what is the condition for the door fully opening and seeing the other person on the other side of that door who is the ministry opportunity? The condition is that person must be willing to receive the gospel. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Yeah? You see the other condition? It's not our condition. It's on the other side of the door. The person must be seeking and must be knocking, saying, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know the truth. And if that person doesn't want it, even though our conditions are met, the door won't open. You must understand this principle. You can do all you can do, and we as a church can do all we can do to prep ourselves. I'm faithful to your word. I'm not worldly, Lord. I've met all the conditions, and the door still won't open because on the other side, no one wants it. That's what's happening in America, folks. This is why you're getting so discouraged. I'm so discouraged because we're all ready to go. I would love to share the gospel. We try to share the gospel, but no one wants to hear it. It just falls on deaf ears. That's okay. We'll still do our job. We'll still prepare. But that other equation is they must be knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come into him. But you've got to open the door for him to come in. And I will dine with him and he with me. Right? They've got to be knocking. I tell you this so you don't get discouraged when you do evangelism around here. We're going to have projects and you're going to see a very few results. It's because of the other side. They're not wanting it. They've got life all figured out. They don't want Jesus. They're good. They're good. They're rolling. It's okay. He'll only open that door if they're ready. Some application for us. The obvious lesson is this. If he does open that door of ministry opportunity to you, whether that's to evangelize, whether that's to serve somewhere in the church, whether that's to teach a class, whether that's to serve in some capacity, some form or fashion, you have met the qualifications, and now he's opened that door. But here's the deal. Guess what? You're responsible for walking through the door. You're responsible. And so many Christians have the door opened in front of them, and they're like, I'm not going through that door. No way. Uh-uh. I'm not going through that door. Be careful. 
If you do not take that opportunity, that door will close and you will never get that door back again. You will never get it back again. Once he opens a door, he is saying, I need you, green light, go through. But the problem is a lot of people don't. One of the things I I want to point out is there are barriers of why people don't go through that door. There are hindrances of why people don't go through that door. Some of it is of their own doing. In a lot of ways, kind of we're our own worst enemy. We have our own issues, our own baggage. You look at the door that's open, you're like, oh, man, that's going to cost a lot, man. And uh, it's going to inconvenience me. That means I've got to get up early in the morning. And, and you can talk yourself out of everything. You basically can. You basically, by the self-talk. And a lot of people do that. They just say, ah, I'm just too busy. I've got this going on and that. It's all excuses. It's all a smokescreen. And here's the deal. I'm a pastor. I, I want you to serve but I'm not going to get in the middle of your obedience to Messiah. That's between you and him. I feel bad when somebody doesn't serve, and I see the gifts they have and the talent. I feel bad about that. It breaks my heart because they're missing out on opportunities. But that's between them and Jesus. I'm not going to get in the middle of that. And they can come up with all the excuses, but here's the deal. You don't have to make the excuse to me. It ain't going to be me you're talking to. When you stand before Christ, he's going to say, I opened that door, and I opened that door, and I opened that door. Why didn't you take it? And that's when your excuses are going to have to be given. Not with anyone else in life, not with me. It's going to be with him. It's between you and him. I'm just saying, if he does open that door, I would hightail it as fast as I can to take it. I would take it. Because it's not going to come back to you twice. If you miss this opportunity, you will miss it. I'll give you a personal example in my own life. And I don't, I don't hear Jesus audibly, don't get that, but in studying the Scriptures and, and Him prompting me to start Rock Harbor, what I got back from all the studying and all the impressions I got on my heart was, Brandon, I'm giving you this one shot. If you don't take it, if you're more comfortable sitting where you're at, getting a big fat paycheck, getting, getting benefits, and you like your salary better than you do faith, then you sit right there and don't take this opportunity. You sit right on the easy boy chair that you're in, and you become lazy. And you keep collecting that check. Oh, yeah, you'll still serve me, but not at the capacity that I'm calling you to serve at me. I'm asking you to step up, leave it all behind, and give it up for me in faith. And I'm only giving it one time. When he did that to me on my heart, I said, "Uh uh-oh, I better get going. And it was like, I have to. Because it's not coming back. This door of opportunity, you will mess it up sometimes. I will mess it up. But the other thing is our family can mess it up. And I've said this before, and I'm going to keep reiterating it. When you look at discipleship through the Gospels, one of the major problems with people following Jesus is their own family. And you know it. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, a a mother against her daughter, a father against his son, a man's own enemies will be of his own household. And then you have all these other passages of saying, Jesus, I'll serve you when my, when I bury my dad and stuff like that. I'll get back at you. No, no, I'll be there. I'll be there. And before you know it, you see people after people giving excuses of why they don't take the open door because of family. The family members are, are getting in the way of it. That's a hard one, isn't it? 
Because Jesus said that's going to be the primary problem is you and your family. Your family will prevent you from taking doors. And you think about it on our level, so many people, just on a church our size, you know, their excuse is, well, you know, I got my kids, or I got this going on, or I got that going on. I tell you something, the last church I was in, so many people gave excuses of their family. They'd use their kids for excuses. I remember one guy said he wouldn't be baptized until his father died. He's a grown man. He's a grown man telling me, and I said, again, I don't care. That's between him and God. He wouldn't be baptized because he's going to wait for his dad because his dad believed in sprinkling. And boy, if I get immersed, my dad's going to pitch a fit. I'm just going to wait till he dies, and then I'll get baptized. How is that excuse going to work with Jesus? You see what the guy was doing? He's putting his family, his father, in front of his obedience to Jesus. That is a black and white issue. You don't go unbaptized if you're a believer. You get baptized immediately. You don't wait. You don't have the option to wait. It's not even seen in Scripture. But yet this man says, you know what? I don't care what Jesus says. I don't want to upset my father. Come on. Really? Wow. That's scary. I say all of this because... If we are the Philadelphia church or we're in that category, we're going to be given ministry opportunities because he knows your doctrine is straight. You're faithful to him. You've met all the conditions. Now he says it's up to you if you want to be used. It's totally up to you. And I pray you do that. But there's going to come a day that Jesus is going to say, I've given you plenty. I'm closing the door. That breaks my heart because you will not get the rewards that he intended to give you. I always sometimes think about this, and we'll close. What if you and I get to heaven, and we're standing in front of Jesus at the Bema Seat of Christ, and he's going through our lives, because that's what we're going to do is recount our lives. And he's going to show us, man, you, I gave you this, and I gave you that. And, and then in the background, he's going to say, and I had this reward for you, and I had that reward for you, and that for I was I was ready to give it to you, man. I was ready and willing to give it to you if you would have taken that door. He goes, but unfortunately, I can't give that to you. I'm going to give that to another. For he who doesn't have will be taken from him. But he who has will be given more. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.